Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. Who benefits and who loses if the minimum wage goes up across the United States? Let's get to the bottom line. Advocates for raising the minimum wage in America came this close to achieving victory last week in Congress. President Joe Biden wrapped it into his multi-trillion dollar economic stimulus plan, but it was knocked out at the last minute. For years, pro-worker activists in America have been wanting to raise the bar from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour as the bare minimum compensation an employer should offer his or her employees. They argue that the current minimum wage, which comes out to about $1,000 a month for full-time work, leaves millions of Americans living in poverty. Opponents argue that doubling the salary of entry-level jobs would force many businesses to shut down or fire folks, or at least think twice before hiring more workers. So who's wrong and who's right? Which plan would lift millions out of the American poverty trap? And which plan gives small business owners a fighting chance? Fortunately, we're joined by folks who have all the answers. David Sirota is the editor-at-large at Jacobin Magazine and former speechwriter for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign last year. And economist Rachel Gresler worked for years in the Joint Economic Committee of the United States Senate, and she's currently a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, where she studies the economy and federal budget. Uh, thank you to you both for joining us today. Let me start out with you, Rachel. You $7.25 an hour. I mean, just hearing that and, and knowing, uh, you know, I've been working on economic issues for a very long time. And when you look at worker stagnation, you look at wage stagnation, I mean, the $7.25 line seems almost embarrassing. Who would be opposed to raising that? What, what is the case against raising the minimum wage? Well, the $7.25 an hour, that's not a living wage. And I think we all acknowledge that. But what that is, is it's a stepping stone. It's the bottom rungs on the ladder so that people who are just entering the labor market, the 26 million Americans who don't have a high school degree, somebody with a disability or criminal record, it's that starting point for them to be able to gain the education and experience so that they can climb further up the ladder. And so obviously the people who are hurt by a minimum wage that excludes them from that is the very people who need those education opportunities in order to get their foot in the door. I guess my question is why not make a step on the lower end of that level? Why be satisfied with that notion, oh, that's the ladder in? Why can't the ladder be in $15 an hour? Well, there are certain people that when they first start out are not capable of producing the equivalent of $15 per hour. That costs an employer $36,000 per year. I know that when I first start, started my job at Pizza Hut washing dishes or when I was waiting tables at the sub-minimum wage, I wasn't producing that much in value. But nevertheless, that was a great opportunity for me to be able to gain that work experience and that education. And so we've actually seen a decreasing number of people who are earning the $7.25 an hour or less um, even as that wage has remained the same, because when you have a strong economy and a tight labor market, which is what we had from 2016 to 2019, leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic, we actually saw the wages of the lowest 10% of workers rise the most. They experienced 15% wage growth, and that's more than the middle, and that was more than the top 10% of workers. And so when employers have to compete to get the workers that they need, and when they have lower taxes and lower regulations and they can invest more in those workers and provide them with education and training, that's when you see more opportunities for people and when they don't even earn the minimum wage anymore. David, you and I have been corresponding for decades, I think, about subjects around growing inequality, about the erosion of the American middle class and about the poverty uh, economy in America. Why is the minimum wage debate such an important one to you? 
Well, look, I mean, the minimum wage directly affects uh, millions of workers. It is the floor of wages in America, obviously, the minimum. Uh, the Raising the minimum wage would boost the wages of roughly at least 10 million workers, according to the Congressional Budget Office. So it is the, uh, it is the entry point, it is true, the entry point to the economy. And your, your question at the beginning of this is right. Why can't the entry point uh, be uh, something better, something uh, that's more equitable, especially at a time of rising economic inequality? And I would, I would answer your question one other way, which is to say that this should be the minimum that is done to start restructuring the economy. That if you're going to start to actually address not just getting people through this pandemic, which is hugely important to help uh, get people through a difficult time and the economic uh, crisis. But if you're going to start restructuring the economy as a whole to make sure that it starts uh, producing and, and sh more and sharing more wealth with people at the bottom end to lessen that gap, the minimum wage is the first place to start. One of the other uh, findings, David, in this is that if, if they were to impose a $15 minimum wage around the country, they talk about the job losses that would be created. Is that of concern to you? Do you, do you buy that line or, or do you think that, that those findings are off somehow? Well, I think that we have a lot of data from the last many years where states and cities have raised their minimum wage above uh, the federal minimum wage, and there has not been requisite mass job lo losses. I mean, there's been some job loss at the margins, but overall study after study after study shows that there is not some huge giant effect uh, in terms of depressing uh, the labor market uh, when it comes to raising the minimum wage. That, that it, part of what's offset about it is that when you pay workers more money, uh, they can pump more money into state and local economies uh, in terms of spending. So I, I believe that, that the economic data uh, over years and years and years is, is very clear on this, that while you can argue there may be some uh, job losses on the, on the very, very margins, that overall in the macro economy, uh, it is not a huge effect at all. And if there's a much bigger effect in terms of the anti-poverty component, in terms of, of giving workers uh, at the lowest rung of the economic ladder, giving them the resources they need to survive. Rachel, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been out tweeting about this subject, and there was a lot of frustration about the parliamentarian's decision not to let this go through a budget reconciliation process and having the $15 minimum wage uh, part of that massive $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill uh, be taken out uh, as an item. But, but she, she uh, writes, and I'll, we'll put it on the screen, and she says, uh, override the parliamentarian and raise the wage. McDonald's workers in Denmark are paid $22 an hour, six weeks paid vacation. $15 an hour is a deep compromise, a big one considering the phase-in. I guess my question, you know a lot about uh, uh, not only the U.S. economy, but other economies. So let me just ask you, if it can work in Denmark, why can't it work in the United <laughs> States? Well, in Denmark, that $22 per hour is not actually the result of a government-mandated minimum wage. And I think that this draws to the differences that exist across countries, but also across the United States. I mean, we are a very diverse place. And when we talk about $15 per hour in D.C., when they've already implemented that, that's very different than $15 per hour in Diverville, Mississippi. Across the state of Mississippi, the median wage is $15 per hour. So if we talk about a federal mandate raising it to $15 per hour, 
That's half of the population that you are mandating a wage increase for those employers. That's very different. That's equivalent to mandating $36 per hour in DC. And I don't think anybody would say that that's a good idea. And so this highlights the fact that if there are to be minimum wages, they need to be tailored to each state and each locality so that they're not disproportionately driving out job opportunities. We have seen economic evidence in the preponderance of it says that there are negative employment effects, but we've only seen those localized studies. We have never seen a study that looks at more than doubling the minimum wage on a nationwide scale. Yes, Seattle has done it, other places have, but Seattle did it and what happened, employers held on to the more experienced workers and those with less experience or who were just trying to get a job had to go outside the city limits to make up for their lost work. And there were negative employment impacts, but what works for a high cost city does not work for rural Alabama. David, you have written um, a lot about this. You've got a great headline out, if I may. It's called Raise the Minimum Wage, Stop the Joe Manchin Presidency. Uh, it's very provocative. And, 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 and if I were sitting in Joe Manchin's office, I would sort of take this as more compliment than critique in a way, because you compliment him for deploying power, his political power right now, in a way that other advocates for workers in a $15 minimum wage have not had the guts to do yet. I mean, it's a real slam to, uh, against some progressives in the Senate. I'd, I'd love to get your snapshot. Might, one, am I getting that right? But, uh, you know, I think in this, when you look at it, you're basically arguing that, that this is an, you know, an end of the world issue, that they have to act with greater backbone and severity, which meant vote against the COVID relief bill uh, unless it has the $15 minimum wage built into it. So, so tell me what your thinking is in this to go to such um, brinksmanship regarding this particular issue. Well, uh, to be clear, I'm, I'm not arguing that progressive Democrats should take down the COVID relief bill. I mean, I worked in the House for five years, and what I was arguing and what I am still arguing is, is that the progressive Democrats in the House, and by the way, in the Senate, uh, need to actually make crystal clear demands and then stick by them procedurally to make sure that the final package, which has to pass, and which is a must-pass bill, which will pass, that the final package has some form of minimum wage increase in it. Joe Manchin has made clear, uh, or I sh actually shouldn't say he's made clear, he has implied uh, that he uh, would vote down a bill that includes things that he does not want in it. That is the insinuation, that is the implication, that is what people assume. And so what ends up happening in these legislative debates is that the, the legislative conversation revolves around how to appease him, how to make him happy. One of the things he said uh, was that he may not support a $15 minimum wage, but he would at least support uh, at least an $11 minimum wage chained uh, to a, a consumer price index, uh, essentially rate of inflation. Uh, the Democrats have all said that they're, uh, most of them have said that they're for a $15 minimum wage. Uh, so the question is, well, how did we go from the Democrats saying that they want $15, Joe Manchin saying he'd take at least $11, and the final uh, COVID relief bill having zero dollars of minimum wage increase in it. And I think part of the issue is, is that the other, that the progressives in the Senate, that the House progressives has, have not said that we are not going to uh, accept and we are not going to vote for a final COVID bill, COVID relief bill, unless it includes some form 
of minimum wage increase in it. Then, in other words, that they have not been willing to behave the way Joe Manchin has behaved. Now, the reason they haven't is because there's good stuff, very good things, uh, in the COVID relief bill that progressives support. But the bottom line is, if you're not willing to make demands and say that you have specific things that you want in a bill and that you will withhold your votes for those things until those things are added to the bill, then you should not expect to have them added into the legislation. Rachel, from an economic perspective, if there were to be a deal and Joe Manchin won the day on an you know, $11 compromise or someone in there, what would be the economic uh, ripple effects from your perspective from that? Well, $11 per hour would be less harmful than $15 per hour. You'd see fewer jobs lost. You'd see fewer price, price increases that are impacting families and workers. But the reality is it shouldn't just be what works for Joe Manchin and for West Virginia residents. It should be what works for everybody across the 50 U.S. states. And so I think that what the appropriate compromise would be is to tie whatever the federal minimum is set at to a locality-based adjustment. The federal government already does this with their own general schedule pay scale. And so they allow for differences in the cost of living across the United States. You know, what's going to happen here is a lot of unintended consequences, especially in lower cost areas. I was looking just at the childcare sector, and this is a relatively low wage sector. $15 per hour there would mean a 21% increase in prices, a 43% increase in Mississippi. So we're talking about thousands of dollars more per year for lower income and middle class working families. And that prices them out of being able to afford other things. And it makes the situation completely different in terms of whether they are even able to work to begin with. David, how do you see locality based adjustments? And I should also say just in response to Rachel, you know, recently talked to the head of the Farm Workers Union of America. When you look at at particularly women in the workforce and the double they hit they've taken both in terms of being laid off in this time, but also if they do have jobs of, the, of, 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 of children at home, the costs of, of, of care on a lot of fronts. And, you know, it's a very bleak picture for a lot of Americans out there. And I want to make sure that as we talk about this, we're remembering how bleak the circumstances are uh, for working Americans who are doing everything right, but still have the cards uh, stacked up against them. But, but David, does Rachel have a point about locality adjustments? Well, my, my point on the minimum wage is that we have to decide what the minimum is, that, that that's the first decision in the United States is what is the minimum acceptable? And this is really a moral question. What is the minimum acceptable pay per hour uh, that we believe that people deserve when they work? You can make arguments. Some workers are more valuable. Some workers are, are, are more productive, this, that, and the other thing. But the point is, is that we have to actually take a moral, uh, make a moral decision about what is the minimum that somebody who is working for an hour deserves to be paid for that hour. That is a decision we have to make. It is a national decision. I also think the second point is, is that we can look at the minimum wage in a, in a snapshot situation where we say, you know, if right now we raise the minimum wage to $15, and it should be said that this is all phased in. So let's be very clear about this. We're not talking about uh, taking the minimum wage to $15, you know, tomorrow. It's phased in. But the point is that if you take a, a short-term uh, isolated view and say, what would happen if we raise people's wages uh, to, to $15, people who don't make $15, what would happen to the economy in the, in the short term uh, versus what would happen in the long term? And the long term is an important point because it starts to factor in that there's more money in the hands of workers who then spend it in their local economies. In right. other words, that if you, yes, there's a, there's a, a point you can say, well, oh, you know, 
from today to tomorrow, if you raise the minimum wage right. from, from X to Y, there's an economic effect. <coughs> but there's also a longer term effect mm. because you're putting more money into the hands of thousands, if not millions of workers to then spend in that economy, which creates all sorts of other positive effects for the businesses that we're talking about. So what but is- But you also have to acknowledge on the other side there, you, you're, you know, the CBO has, you're putting more money into the hands of some workers and you're taking money out of the hands of other workers and out of smaller businesses that aren't able to adjust as well as larger businesses are. And so the reality here that we have to recognize is policymakers cannot create new income. They can only redistribute income. If you wanna achieve true lasting income gains, then workers need to have additional education so that they can become more productive, paired with technology that makes them more productive. Things like apprenticeship programs that could be expanded or more opportunities to independent work for other low-income workers is the solution. It's not redistributing income. Uh, but I would, I would argue one, one quick point on this. We don't necessarily have a problem in the United States where business profits, business revenues, and business margins uh, are a problem. We have a problem where we have seen for years and years and years, uh, business profits, corporate profits skyrocket, and workers are not getting a share uh, of those revenues and profits. They have not, they're not getting the same share that they were getting 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So, this is, so, so even if we talk only about redistribution and not revenue growth, we have a fundamental problem where workers are not getting the share of the total pie that they used to be getting in an economy that in many macroeconomic ways was working better uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Well, why not, David? Why... Go ahead, Rachel, please. I think there's a misperception about the minimum wage and that you can just mandate it and it's all the large companies that it's going to affect when the reality is it's the smaller businesses that tend to employ more low-wage workers. And these are the businesses that we've been hearing about. Betsy Leroy, who served President Biden in her restaurant, she's taken out a home equity line of credit to help her workers because she wants to keep their paychecks coming. And yet she said, this will decimate my restaurant. It will put me out of business. We have to recognize that this will disproportionately impact smaller business owners. Their average income is $69,000 a year. It's not billions of dollars in corporate profits. The money simply isn't there for the smaller businesses, and they're the ones that will be driven out. Well, I think, Rachel, your, your point gets is something that I've been concerned about, which is, um, I'm going to just think hypothetically for a moment, uh, David, you probably get angry here in this, but, but if you did accept the Joe Manchin line that $11 gets that worker who's working full-time above poverty and index it above that level, that, that he could argue, well, that's a moral argument. But my concern after looking at this is that workers have not had portable pension benefits, have not had portable health care, have not had portable um, you know, benefits across a lot of you know, the worker spectrum. And then particularly in the decades that I've been paying attention to this and, and talked to David when, in the 1990s, you've seen uh, everything else be flexible and nimble in an economy except workers who were sort of captured. And so I, I'm just wondering if it doesn't make much more sense at some level to address what Rachel said is start, I mean, she doesn't agree with me on the minimum wage, but start with the minimum wage, then uh, bring in education, create uh, a reverse match in pension uh, benefits, begin looking at that broader arena of inequality that's built up for decades. So David, tell me where I'm wrong with that. 
Well, I, I, I agree partially with it in the sense that, yes, I mean, in the United States, we need to guarantee health care to all Americans. Uh, we need to do a better job of guaranteeing uh, adequate retirement for all Americans. Other industrialized countries do these basic things, uh, which gives workers a lot more flexibility uh, in their own right in the labor market uh, and which can alleviate uh, many of the things uh, that we're talking about. I don't think it negates the uh, the, no, the need for a minimum wage, a, a much higher minimum wage. But I would agree. I would certainly agree that that exacerbating all of this, arguably at the foundation of much of this, uh, is you talk about healthcare. I mean, you talk, and job lock and people dealing with you know all the economic issues that they face. I mean, the fact that we don't guarantee healthcare to all Americans, a good quality healthcare, that is a huge piece of the puzzle. And what the puzzle that we're talking about is how do people survive uh, in the economy? And to bring it back to the COVID relief bill, Steve, one of the things that I'm most concerned about in the COVID relief bill is is that there's great stuff to float people through uh, this uh, horrible economic moment, unemployment benefits and the like. But it doesn't really in any serious structural way uh, address the healthcare si situation. It doesn't have a public insurance option. It sure, sure as heck doesn't have uh, Medicare for all uh, or a guaranteed healthcare benefit in there. You know what it does have? Mm. It has tens of billions of dollars to hand over to private insurance companies to try to uh, get people onto these ACA exchanges, which we know are defined by higher out-of-pocket costs. Uh, and one in six, roughly one in six claims are denied. Now, is that better than nothing for people? Sure. Uh, is is that a, a way to continue uh, fortifying a healthcare system uh, that creates so much pain, suffering, and economic hardship? Yes, and until we address that healthcare uh, 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 structure, we've got a serious problem that you allude to. Rachel, let me just tease out this point that David is making: that in those employers that are employing people at seven dollars and twenty-five cents an hour, those employers, if they're if they're single, head of household, or you know, not single, head of household. They're getting the earned income tax credit, hopefully, if they're applying for it. They're hopefully on the Obamacare exchanges. But there are other subsidies that these companies are getting to have that $7.25 an hour employee, which, you know, to me doesn't make economic sense. And as David said, they're getting much less value for the dollar that is being put into those health care exchanges um, than those of us that are in other health programs. And so how do you, from an economist perspective, square that? Is that a healthy part <laughs> of having a, a low-wage employee at that, at, at that low level of minimum wage? Well, I think that the better way to target individuals, especially somebody who's supporting a family, to let them have the income and the health care and the comprehensive things that they need to support that family is through those things like the earned income tax credit or through the health care subsidies. Because the reality is, is those are things that a 16-year-old working at McDonald's doesn't need, but you want them to be more targeted to those individuals. A problem, though, that has actually been experienced in places like California is when you have these rising wages going towards $15 per hour, you see that some of these lower income families are losing the subsidies that they need. One family that had a $4 raise losing $2,200 per month in childcare subsidies. The incentive for employers to reduce workers' hours below $30, below 30 a week so that they can save $1,000 in the employer mandate from Obamacare. You know, this is a comprehensive policy and it ends up having a lot of unintended consequences for the very people, the lower income, the working families that we all agree we want to help have rising incomes. Hey, David, as we talk about gloom and doom in the U.S. economy and what to do about it, I understand you have a new Netflix Hollywood production called Don't Look Up. Um, tell us about it. 
Uh, sure. It's a uh, movie uh, that is spearheaded by the uh, one and only great director, Adam McKay. Uh, what I can tell you is it's essentially about uh, a, a story of a world in which an asteroid is headed towards Earth, and nobody seems to care. Uh, nobody seems to want to do anything about it. Uh, kind of metaphorical for our uh, current world uh, on a lot of these issues. Do you see the minimum wage debate as an end-of-the-world debate? <laughs> I don't think it's like an asteroid headed towards Earth, certainly. It's an important debate. But I do think the, you know, what, what the movie is sort of spotlighting uh, is, in some cases, our hostility uh, to the, what's happening in our world, the hostility to basic facts, the hostility to science, the hostility towards, um, uh, you know, towards the, the basic reality that we live in. Uh, and I think that uh, I think that's been a major theme of the last few years. And uh, hopefully the movie kind of uh, brings the, the subtext and makes it uh, uh, the full text for people to, to think about uh, the kind of information system that we're living in. Economist Rachel Gresler and author David Sirota, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you to both. Thank you. So what's the bottom line? In the 1980s, the poor were told that wealth will trickle down to them. Just be patient and quiet. So here we are, 40 years later, wondering where's that trickle? The rich are much richer, and everyone below is struggling more and more. The American social contract is broken, and it's pretty obvious that unfettered markets leave a lot of people behind. Plus, there's a collapse of empathy across society today. America's winner-takes-all reality means a few win and a lot lose. And it's no wonder that America's political culture is so toxic these days. I'm not sure that the fight over the minimum wage bill will fully address the broader issue of systemic inequality and divisions in America, but it's an important first start, and that's the bottom line.